Okay, I'll jump straight into it then. Um, what does the word home mean to you? Call out. What does the word home mean to you? Safety? Place? Base. Okay. Belonging? Comfort, shelter? Family? Recharging. That's a good one, Simon. Hold on to that. If I forget it, remind me at the end. Food? White wine? Oh, Wi-Fi. <laughs> Wi-Fi and white wine. Yes, both. Prosecco. <laughs> Whiskey. Uh, yes. Love. Bed. Yeah, that's a good one. Yes, Andrew. A place of retreat. Okay, let's hold all those in tension. They're all wonderful answers, and they're all right, because there actually is no necessarily right or wrong answer. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about what home means to me at the moment, uh, based on quite a few of the things that I've been watching on uh, television, on the films, and the stuff that God is stirring in my heart, and has been for quite a long period of time. This is a picture of Dev Patel in a film called Lion. We watched it fairly recently. Lion is all a, it's a true story about a boy, little boy, who gets abandoned at a railway station in northern India, far from his home, ends up being picked up as a lost child and sent to live with a family in Australia. All the while, his actual family are still in India, but he has no idea where they are. And so the setup of the film is, where is my home? I don't know who I am because I don't know where my home is. So home and identity, who we are, is of, they're both very closely linked. And for him, for his character, it really is a big thing. Now, when we talk about identity and when we talk about home, a lot of the things I'm going to be talking about will tie in with some of the things that Mike Stevens was talking about when he first came to us um, in January. He was talking about getting to know God more deeply. And so let's hold on to that thought. So this film then got me thinking about my own background. So I was sent to boarding school at the age of nine. And this is a book by Mark Stibbe called Home at Last. And when I looked at the, the picture, I remembered what it was like to be at boarding school at the age of nine. I don't want to say the word abandoned because... You kind of are, but you're not, because my parents wanted the best for me. And there is a culture where the best for children to become the great civil servants that will hold up empire. <laughs> Sorry, PJ. It's boarding school, where they'll beat out the rubbish out of you and teach you good things and manners and how to be English. God help us all. <laughs> well, I did learn quite a lot of stuff. Some of it I'd rather unlearn. But um, it's interesting because it, I read the book and it, it brought me back to the little boy I was at nine and the homesickness and the pain that I experienced. And in a sense, Mark Stibbe says, all those who are at boarding school are in a way, they're kind of orphans because they learn to survive on their own. He doesn't judge people to send people to boarding school in many ways. It is an excellent institution. But he, he does say we need to address this issue in people who are 
who went to boarding school. One of the worst questions people could ask me when I was small, and still now is very confusing, is, where, so where are you from? So, so where are you from? I actually have no idea. And in the last few years, my parents have both died, and that kind of makes me even more ruthless. Because, where are you from? Well, I was born in Japan, in Yokohama. Uh, Japanese was my first language. Ooh, let's hear a bit. Skoshidake. <laughs> That's how the conversation goes. <laughs> and, uh, and so I went from Japan in 72, lived in Hong Kong for quite a few year, uh, months. That was my home then. And then suddenly flown out to England. So Sawbridgeworth, where my aunt and uncle lived, was my home because that was where my guardians were. But in a sense, my home was my boarding school. But I didn't really belong there. And so I would belong when I went to my parents, maybe once a year or twice a year on holidays. And so you can see how confused I got. And I became just this person. And then I became an actor. And I think maybe part of me wanting to be an actor was so I could create a persona. Because when people are rootless, when they are abandoned, when they are orphaned, maybe not literally orphaned, but orphaned in spirit, they create personas to survive. Um, I never forget sharing in church once. And the pastor of the time, the Tottenham Church, Alan Woodroff, uh, listened to me. And I said, oh, I didn't really make much of an impact. He said, yeah, that's because you were putting on a voice. He said, Dave, next time you stand on ch- uh, up in church, be yourself. You don't have to put on a voice. And I thought, oh, gosh, yeah, he's right. <laughs> he noticed that I was putting on a voice. I was being David Simmons, the whatever I was, rather than the real me. I seem to be always looking for something I've not found in life, some pleasant dream of a love, an affection I have never known. This was written by Charles Dickens towards the end of his life. I am a massive admirer of Charles Dickens, even though he was a very flawed human being and didn't treat his wife very nicely. Um, Partly because he himself understood the boarding school pain issue. You all familiar with... Scrooge, Alistair Sim, this is a Scrooge. I tried to find a picture of me as Scrooge. I couldn't. It was probably just as well. <laughs> I played the part 10 years ago. We had fun with that show. Do you know, it was, it was one of those. But it's the last thing we ever did 10 years ago. Last night, well, it's the last time I've ever set foot on a stage of any sight. But that, that was Alistair Sim, one of the great Scrooges of our time. Now, what was Scrooge like? Tell me. What was Scrooge like? Tell me. Miserable. What? Miserly, yes. Lonely, yes. Very true. A scraping covetous old sinner, yes. Nicely quoted. Okay, um, I won't try and top that. That's from um, page four, I believe. Anyway, yes, he was scraping and covetous, but this was also Scrooge. The first ghost takes Scrooge back to boarding school. And in the school holidays, he was on his own. He had no family. His family abandoned him, literally. His dad was was a wicked man, actually, Scrooge. And Dickens was writing something of his own life into this. He didn't go to boarding school. Actually, he didn't go to school. He, he went to a blacking factory and worked in a factory for many years because his family needed to, the money to live. Um, and that really shaped a lot of his character and his bitterness. 
that made his writing so amazing and his life so disastrous. But that was Scrooge, at the age of whatever, abandoned by his cruel father. So my studies, my PhD studies, I did about five years ago, finished. Um, one of my primary sources was a book by George Alagaya, Home from Home. When I interviewed participants for my study, let me just quickly explain. They were parents. They'd had a baby. And they had come into the UK as migrants. So they were going through the dual transition, not easy ones, of becoming either English citizens or not becoming English citizens, as the case may be, and becoming parents. And three couples had twins. So that really made it interesting. So I interviewed these parents and I analyzed the data and blah, blah, blah. Wrote it all up in a long book that nobody will ever read. <laughs> but it, it makes a great doorstop. <laughs> and enabled me to wear the most daft orange outfit you've ever seen. Uh, yes, you can see pictures at some point. So anyway, George Alagaya wrote a wonderful book because one of the parents said to me, yeah, I was born back home in Bangladesh. And I thought, well, no, hang on. I thought home for you was Islington originally. And now it's Dagenham. But no, home for him was Bangladesh, even though he hadn't been back since he was, I don't know what, what age. So what does that mean, home? How does that... So that became one of my core... Uh, themes in my PhD. What is home? And George Alagaya, very eloquent writer, he, he, he comes from Sri Lanka. He's uh, then moved to Kenya for many years. So for him, home was Sri Lanka, but then it was Kenya. And then it became uh, a boarding school in England. And then he went to the University of Durham. And then he became a BBC newscaster and he went to South Africa. And so here's a man for whom home is many things. He said, I get very conflicted when I watch cricket and England v Sri Lanka because I love England and I love Sri Lanka. He's gone back to Sri Lanka and reunited with his roots there. And so he recognizes home for him is a lot of different places. So it's about belonging. It's about family. It's about identity. Don't worry about the uh, four things on the outside. If you want to read the PhD, feel free. And we are all familiar with E.T., who was abandoned on Earth. And uh, weirdly, that chimed very powerfully with me as a boarding school kid, because phone home, he was longing for home. That's what his film is all about. Now, what is home for us? Where is home? Well, sometimes you hear Christians say, oh, such and such passed away. They went home to be with Jesus, which is a lovely way of putting it. Um, and I don't doubt that when uh, I get to heaven, it will be home. But actually, I need a home here now while I try and transform the world around me, while I try and make an impact for the kingdom of God. Because we as a church love to impact the world around us. We want to make a difference. We want to turn the gray and the drab into color and life. We want to love where we live. Plug there. So... I asked this question, and God gave me a very straight answer. Now, I'm, I adore this Bible, the Passion Translation. I've just discovered it. Um, the guy who wrote the Passion Translation is a man called Brian Simmons, no, trans, uh, uh, no relationship. He uh, was a Bible translator, not unlike some of our own people. Um, 
But what was amazing is he takes the Aramaic and the Greek and stuff and starts bringing out lots of stuff that I never knew existed in the text. So we'll read the Passion Translation, and every so often I might pause to bring out the occasional uh, nugget from the Passion. But also, it's all focused on how much God loves us, how passionate our God is for each one of us. And that... It's, it's mind-blowing. It is mind-blowing because you change, you transition from an orphan mindset into a mindset of love and belonging and being part of a family that will never die. That's incredible. So this is the Passion Translation of the parable of not the prodigal son, but the loving father. Because Brian Simmons, in his wisdom, has flipped the emphasis from the son to the father. And I think that's very telling. So I'll project it here, because it's on my thing. Uh, It's a little tiny. All right, I'll read it anyway. Jesus said, once there was a father with two sons. The younger son came to his father and said, Father, don't you think it's time to give me a share of your estate that belongs to me? So the father went ahead and distributed the inheritance among his two sons. Now, in the Middle Eastern culture, it was a great offense for a son to ask his father for his inheritance. It was the equivalent of saying, Dad, I wish you were already dead. The Passion Translation brings out stuff like that, which I never knew. Another interesting thing was when someone says to Jesus, I will follow you, but first let me go bury my father. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. I always thought that was a bit cruel of Jesus. Surely the guy's dad died and he wants to bury him. Well, no, actually, let me bury my own father as an Aramaic idiom, a way of saying, uh, wait till my dad dies and I'll take over his business. Then I'll follow you. He was saying, okay, Jesus, manana. But Jesus was saying, no, 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 I'm not having that. It's either now or never. Also, this is amazing, he distributed his inheritance. He distributed among the two sons their inheritance. Literally means he gave them his life. That's the Greek. He gave them his bios, his life. Shortly afterward, the younger son packed up his belongings, traveled off to see the world, where he journeyed to a far-off land, and he soon wasted all he was given in a binge of extravagant and reckless living. With everything spent and nothing left, he grew hungry, for there was a severe famine in the land. So he begged the father to hire him. The farmer hired him, sent him out to feed the pigs. The son was so famished, he was willing to eat even the slops that were given to the pigs, because no one else would feed him a thing. Humiliated, the son finally realized what he was doing. You all know what's going to happen. And he thought, there are many workers in my father's house who have all the food they want with plenty of spare. They They lack nothing. Why am I here dying of hunger, feeding the pigs and eating their slop? I love that word, slop. I want to go back to my father's house and I say to him, Father, I was wrong. I've sinned against you. I'll never be worthy to be called your son. Father, please treat me like one of your employees. So the son sent off for home. From a long distance away, his father saw him coming dressed as a beggar. Great compassion swelled up in his heart for his son who was returning home. So the father raced out to meet him. He swept him in his arms, hugged him dearly, and kissed him one over and over with tender love. 
The son, with his pre-prepared speech, said, Father, I was wrong. I've sinned against you. I could never deserve to be called your son. Just let me. The father interrupted and said, Son, you're home now. Turning to his servants, the father said, Quick, bring me the best robe, my own robe, and I will place it on his shoulders. Bring me the, the ring, the seal of sonship, and I will put it on its finger and bring out the best shoes you can find. Let's prepare a great feast and celebrate. For this beloved son of mine was dead, but now he's alive again. Once he was lost, but now he is found. There's a hymn about that. And everyone celebrated with overflowing joy. Wow, just give me five seconds. <laughs> oh, Holy Spirit. As a lovely film has come out, it'll never win Oscars, probably because faith-based films don't often win Oscars. But also, you know, it's, it's got some interesting moments in it. The director had made some interesting choices. But in amongst all that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and it's something to celebrate. And what's interesting about it, yeah, sorry, guys, spoiler alert, he rises again. I should have, I should have warned you. <clears throat> but uh, Joseph Fiennes, he's a great actor. He's starting to look more like his older brother uh, as he gets older. I'm sure he will love me for saying that. But what's interesting is he plays a centurion called Clavius, whose job it is to find the body of Jesus, because that will put a, to de- to work, put away all this uprising about Jesus Christ. Uh, waste of time. He said he would rise again, show the body, get rid of all the uh, followers, send them home. Well. It's interesting because there's a moment where there's a character who meets the risen Jesus. And this character has already established that they have a certain set of things they want to do in their life. And when they meet the risen Jesus, Jesus echoes back all that's in the character's heart. That's why we follow that man, Jesus because he knows us. And sometimes we can pretend he doesn't, or we can hide from him, or we can run to the ends of the earth and try and escape him, but he will follow us because he's there as well. Even if I go to the depths of, the, of hell, you are there. He's been to hell, and he's still there. He can, home is being, knowing and being known by the Father. The second sentence is actually very important because we can try and hide, as I've said, but he knows us intimately. He knows our ins and outs. He knows our passions. He knows the things that stir us, the things that upset us, the things that frustrate us. He knows the things that we try and hide away from him as well. He knows what's in that trunk that's ready to be opened so that it can be dealt with. There's a wonderful moment in the book Home at Last where the writer says, when the prodigal was in the far country, he engaged in a number of addictive behaviors before he eventually hit rock bottom. And when he did, he lost everything, except, of course, his father's love. All his attempts to find what he was looking for in toxic attachments failed him miserably. It wasn't only coming home to his father's embrace that healed him, It was reattachment to his dad that set him free. And when God hugs us close, he hugs the hell out of us. Just 
as the prodigal son discovered. Now, there are some people here, I know, who never had that love of a father. When I mention a dad, God, Papa God, they think, well, that wasn't my dad. I don't know how to relate to that. I do not know. I do not understand. And so, Psalm 2710, New Living Translation, even if my father and mother abandon me, the Lord will hold me close. You can't escape his love. It doesn't matter how broken you are. And there's a wonderful line in the song we just sang, when broken, uh, broken hearts declare his praise. We're all broken here. We're all broken inside. But God is healing us. God is transforming us. And God is using us to transform society. We are the ones whom Isaiah spoke of who will rebuild the broken walls. We will replant the vineyards. We will take back the places that were destroyed by the locusts. There's a wonderful moment where uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, was, um, it was discovered that his true father wasn't the father he thought was his father all along. And uh, this is a big deal in the world, as you can imagine, it's a big deal in terms of identity and belonging. And so some journalist kindly asked him, how does this affect you now? Because there are great musicians. I mean, I remember Eric Clapton had a similar thing uh, when he discovered his parentage wasn't what he thought. And Justin Welby said this. I know that I find who I am in Jesus Christ, not in genetics, and my identity in him never changes. When we are starved of a father's love, we become like orphans, and we strive for affection through achievement and performance. But when we encounter the father's love, we come home. It's interesting, the whole thing about performance, because... Um, I am a performer by whatever. Um, but what's interesting is, over time, God has been saying to me recently quite a lot, I want you to sing, David. And so I think, okay, yes, I'll stand up in front of lots of people and I'll sing. No, David, that's not what I'm talking about. I want to hear your voice. Just you. No one else. And so that's what I, I've been doing. Um, it's so important that we learn, no matter how many times we can perform or stand up as teachers to a class of children or an assembly, <laughs> ultimately it's all about that. As performers, as singers, dancers, as coffee shop managers who entertain the great and the good through their coffee shop. That's really all that matters. And it's from that place that, as Simon was saying, we get regenerated, we get recharged. Because if we play to him, if we sing to him, and I mean sing, and if you, your voice isn't up to it, don't worry. He listens to your heart, not your voice. I may be able to tremolo, vibrato, whatever else, but that's not important to him. But if we 
spend time in his presence with no other agenda and say, Papa God, here I am. You don't have to come up with a list. You know, when I pray, I pray all the time. It's a, like a constant, constant ra- rabbiting. I rabbit to God. <laughs> and sometimes, sometimes he doesn't get a word in edgeways. Well, most of the time he doesn't get a word in edgeways. I just rabbit. Um, and if I see something that, that distresses me, sometimes I'll read it and get angry. Uh, sometimes I'll read it and say, oh, God, help me deal with this because it's not good. But what's important is there are times when I just sit in his presence, doing and saying nothing. Singing, yes, maybe. Reading a bit of the Bible, yes. But ultimately, I try and make sure there are times when it's just me and him, and it's silent. And sometimes he speaks, sometimes he doesn't speak. Sometimes I sense his presence, sometimes I don't sense his presence. And I just carry on with the day. But I'm learning to switch into that point where it's just me and him. And uh, someone once said, um, what happens if you're in God's presence and you fall asleep? Isn't that awful? You're in God's presence and you just drift off. Well, what greater thing for a father to have their child snuggle up to them and fall asleep? What's the big deal if you fall asleep in God's presence? Who knows, you might get some dreams. And from that sleep, what dreams may come? Playing to an audience of one. So, let's spend time now asking God for that encounter. If you feel this morning particularly stirred that you don't know that father that you long for that father, I would urge you to come forward and let us pray for you. If you don't know Jesus, if you don't know the sacrifice he made for you so you can get to know the father, then come as well and we will pray for you. If there's something I've said that makes you long, ah, yeah, I miss the presence of God. I want more. I want more. I want more. Then there'll be the team up here afterwards to come and pray with you. Um, Because ultimately, in God's presence, there's no place we would rather be. Thank you.